This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Shadows at the Door, the podcast. My name is Mark Nixon, and if this is your first time joining us, each week David Alt and I bring you a ghost story that aims to both please and terrify you. In some episodes, we adapt classic stories, both well-known and some not so much, and others we bring you brand new stories tailored just for this podcast. After each story, join us for a spirited discussion But if you prefer a completely serious discourse in which we never stray off topic, well, then maybe you shouldn't join us. This week our story is called Let Sleeping Gods Lie. In it we travel to Egypt and is written by our first guest writer, Gemma Amor. We start with the diary entries of an archaeologist and his growing concern at events unfolding around his dig. So gather around the fire, pour yourself some tea. And we'll begin. Dearest Elizabeth, at last I can lift the veil of secrecy surrounding my latest expedition. I write this to you from the mouth of the Fayum Oasis in Egypt, which is a few days' journey southwest of Cairo. The Fayum is a lush, fertile area within a large depression in the desert, situated around a great lake. Mainly, the area is known for its farming activities, and the region is famous for fresh fruit. Oranges, lemons, guavas, mangoes, apricots, some of these of which I have tasted before, and some of which I have never seen in my life, and the flavours are astonishing to my palate. Locals also sell honey and flowers for perfume making, and fishing is a lucrative business here. In short, the Fayum is a type of paradise, and has been for thousands of years. I'm here to explore and excavate within the mortuary complex at a site called Hawara, 
which is at the entrance to the Fayum. I will tell you more of this in the letters to follow. For now, I am weary from traveling, and I can hear the call to prayer, which means the light will be fading shortly. I confess I am heartsick this night, for I miss you and the children. How is little Edward progressing with his studies? Tell Bess that I shall endeavor to find her a trinket she may have for a keepsake. Soon enough, she will have a collection to rival that of the British Museum. Please, as always, I must ask that you maintain as much silence and discretion as possible about my whereabouts. Looters and treasure hunters abound in these parts, as do agents from other societies and museums, all of them desperate to get their hands on any artifact possible. For now, the site is mine to explore, and anything I discover will belong to the Egypt Exploration Society. The dusky air is busy with the sounds of insects and the calls of strange birds I do not recognize. I am excited for what the coming days will bring. I wish you good night, and sweet dreams for all of you as you lay your heads to rest. Ever yours, F.P. Journal entry, Tuesday, Hawara Complex. The first day of our excavations have gone well. We began by clearing the ground in the southwest corner of the mortuary complex, an area that, as yet, has not been explored much. The men are working well and are cheerful despite the blazing conditions. I have to remind them to stop and water and eat. Take a break, men. Uh, take some water and food. Allah Yahanik. Bon appétit. Oh, this heat. Once we have finished clearing and preparing the ground, I hope to dig an access trench and locate an entrance into the lower levels of the complex. From there, I hope to find funeral artifacts and, if my suspicions are correct, the tomb of a king. What? What on earth are you doing here, cat? Shoo! Shoo! Oh, I see. Hungry for my rations, are you? Ugh. <laughs> here you go. Cats are sacred in Egypt, I suppose. <laughs> I can't wait to write to my wife about you. Handsome fellow, aren't you? Oh, I see. You're not a fellow at all, are you? More of a lady. Well, I am grateful for the company at any rate. Although my Arabic is very rusty, understand? Bear that in mind and we shall get along just fine. Now, off with you for a while. I have important work to do. Dearest Elizabeth, let me tell you more about the Hawara complex and my purpose here. Hawara lies in the Fayum, as I said before, and comprises of a pyramid and a temple built by the 12th dynasty king Amenemhat III. The pyramid itself, although nearly 60 meters tall and remarkable for its size alone, is made from mud brick and has been much studied already by my predecessors. I am interested, therefore, in the complex around the pyramid, 
particularly what lies to the south, a vast and exciting structure known to Herodotus and other ancient Greek scholars as the labyrinth. The labyrinth covers an area of 15 acres and once had 12 covered courts, six facing north and six facing south. Inside, there was a great temple building which covered two floors and 3,000 rooms, half of which were located above ground, the other half of which were buried beneath the surface. Herodotus wrote once that he visited the temple complex, but was never allowed to visit the underground chambers because they contained the tombs of kings who built the labyrinth and also the tombs of crocodiles who were worshipped in the Fayum. His account was of a spectacular maze of rooms, galleries and courtyards, a wonder of engineering and design. Today, a little of this structure remains above ground, but it is what lies beneath the surface that fascinates me, Elizabeth. I want to go below, into the tombs of the kings and the crocodile gods. Working conditions continue to be uh, challenging. It's hotter than Hades, and I am plagued by this confounded feral tabby cat that has decided to make my camp her home. She sits in the shade of my tent, licking her paws and watching imperiously as I toil away in the relentless Egyptian sun, and all the while the pyramid looms over me like a great, slumped, sleeping king. And I too must sleep, Elizabeth, for I am exhausted in both mind and body. I will slumber like a mighty king tonight. Good night, my darling, and Godspeed to you and the children. F.P. I'm trying to sleep. Be quiet. <laughs> Dear Elizabeth, the cat woke me up last night when I was in my deepest point of sleep. I was not amused, as sleep is difficult enough out here in the heat despite my exhaustion. However, I have decided that if I cannot rid myself of the cat, I'd better name it instead. I've chosen Bast for obvious reasons, Bastet being the name of the ancient cat god. As Egyptian culture reveres the cat so strongly, I continue to take her presence at my camp as a good omen, or at least this is what I tell myself as the tiredness threatens to pull me under and the silly mog keeps sharpening her claws on my trouser leg. Bast accompanied me on my dig today, and perhaps coincidentally or not, today was the day we found the entrance to the lower levels, right where I predicted it would be in the southwest quadrant, close to the base of the pyramid. Once the men and I had broken through the stone and found the access tunnel, the sun was already beginning its descending arc in the sky. I pushed on, and we lit torches and descended nonetheless. 
and within the first few feet of the passage I made some incredible finds, including an antechamber which was sealed tight with carved stone. It was a chamber I had not seen marked upon the existing floor plan of the site, and its discovery gave me great hope for what lay beyond. After breaking through the huge stone door seal, we found inside a collection of funeral treasures all heaped into a haphazard pile in one corner of the chamber, as if thrown in there hastily. And, Elizabeth, the plot thickens. There was none of the usual care or ceremony that you see displayed in the tombs of pharaohs found in the Valley of the Kings. This tomb complex has a feeling of something different. The walls are not decorated with the fine hieroglyphics one would expect. There are riches and gold, jewellery, finely crafted furniture, but although the quality is indicative of status, the way these things are, well, thrown into the chamber, it tells a story I cannot quite decipher. I also found a strange collection of amphorae in the room, crafted from alabaster with a globular body shape, tall necks, two handles, and shallow ring feet at the bottom. Some of them even still had alabaster lids in place, which are very rarely found. I wonder if some of the sealed amphorae still contain liquids or oil. I'm not comfortable moving them until I know I have a storage case well prepared, which I shall do tomorrow. Lastly, I found several crocodile burials around the mouth of the chamber, just outside the door seal. This confirms my suspicions, based on the descriptions of Herodotus, that the Labyrinth Temple was originally dedicated to the crocodile god Sobek. Tonight, once I have finished documenting these finds, I hope to sleep better. Yours, F.P. Journal entry number seven, Hawara Complex. I decided to break down the far wall of the antechamber we discovered yesterday and see if there are further chambers beyond the wall. I ordered the men to begin breaking down the wall, which they did with much muttering and nervousness. 
Something has shifted in their attitude this past day or two. Where once my team were eager to please and diligent, they now have become sullen and withdrawn. They are also extremely reluctant to explore the further reaches of what lies beneath the temple. Progress is slow because of this, and I find I am growing frustrated. When I ask them what troubles them so, the men talk about strange noises in the night, and <laughs> I have to admit that my sleep has been greatly disturbed, even if I am yet to hear the noises they actually speak of. They mutter about angry gods and make signs against evil spirits. I manage to calm their fears somewhat with the promise of more money on our return to town, and for now they stay with me. I do not think it will take much to scare them off, however, which remains a sobering thought. Superstition is a difficult beast to tame. These struggles notwithstanding, my instinct about the chamber wall paid off, and we broke through eventually into another chamber, this one much bigger than the first. Inside, we unearthed a black granite statue of the king himself, Amenemhat III. It is a glorious find. The statue is in almost perfect condition and is a wonderful example of Egyptian skill in stonecraft. The king has a serious expression upon his face, full cheeks and rather prominent ears. Sometimes, a scholar I knew once speculated, these statues have large ears to indicate that the king hears everything and rules over us all accordingly. Sometimes the ears are just perhaps a realistic depiction of, well, <laughs> large ears. There is a sense of weariness about his face, of being tired of the burden of leadership. More peculiar to me, however, is the damage I found to the bottom of the statue, the part buried furthest into the ground. It took a while to extract from the earth and dust, but once we did, and once the granite had been cleared of debris, I could see these marks, like great deep gouge marks, only not made with a blade or other tool that I can make out. These look more like, well, like something has clawed at or bitten the stone. The men looked at the marks and made signs against evil spirits again, muttering and jabbering to each other in consternation. I can hear them outside my tent now, talking in uneasy Arabic to each other. They are deeply upset, and it has dulled the shine from the day's proceedings considerably. Bast seems unconcerned by all of this. She is curled up on my lap as I write this, purring. Damn cat. The men ran away today, Elizabeth. I woke up and they had simply vanished into thin air. They took all the pack mules with them, save for one. They left my equipment in place and my supplies, my water, my food, my fire lighting tools. They stole nothing. They just left, Elizabeth, quietly and as if they had never been there at all. Something has frightened them, Elizabeth. I, I knew it when we unearthed the statue yesterday. A statue which I will never be able to transport to Cairo by myself, not now. 
I thought about abandoning the site and returning to town to recruit more men, but I feel reluctant to leave the site unguarded. I feel so close to something momentous, Elizabeth. So close, I can feel it in the air. Something, something tangible, waiting for me to discover it. I shall take the tools down to the chamber and break down the next wall on my own. The stone is soft, so it should be manageable by myself. If my assumptions are correct, there are a series of these chambers to work through before I get to the main burial chamber, as it were. Someone of great stature is sleeping in the darkness, waiting for me to set him free. I feel it. I shall continue to write these letters to you, Elizabeth, despite not being able to send them now that my men have abandoned me and I have no one to courier them to the city. They shall serve as my excavation diary, as I have filled my journal with notes and drawings now. When I return to Cairo, I will have them sent to you, so that you and the children can marvel as to what lies beneath the pyramid. F.P. Almost there, almost there. Can't you do something instead of just sitting there watching me work and licking yourself? No? I suppose not. Still, I must confess, I shall miss you when I return to England. Perhaps I can smuggle you home somehow. What would you say to that? <laughs> ah, this is it, Bast. We're close now. I can feel colder air coming in from behind the stone. It won't be long before we're through to the other side and... Uh, oh. What's that? Uh, uh, curious. There appears to be some sort of mechanism buried at the base of the door. I, uh, I'm fine, I'm fine. I must have just oh, knocked myself out for a few moments in the fall, that's all. Oh. Now, shoo. Let me see if I can't scramble out of this mess. Oh, damn booby traps. Oh. 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 Oh, right, well, at least I'm not half buried under a pile of rock anymore. Now I can't see a thing. Where did I put those matches? Oh, what a relief. The torch fell through the floor. And now, let's look around, Bast, and see... It's marvelous. <laughs> Dear Elizabeth, 
My matches are fast running out and my meager torch gives out weaker and weaker light, but still something compels me on. I admit I should be saving the light rather than writing this letter, but uh, somehow the act of writing makes me feel less alone in the darkness. I am deep in the labyrinth now, a secondary level into which I fell. The cat has followed me down here, and I am very glad she has, for I am in a vast, endless network of corridors, the like of which you could not even imagine. When I fell, I was lucky enough to be wearing my utility belt and satchel, so I have some tools to help me down here, although no food and my water canteen is almost dry. I do have my pistol, which brings me some small comfort, although I could not tell you why. Using chalk, I have been exploring the corridors, marking a trail so that I can find my way back easily. And after only a few hours of steady walking, I found a tomb, Elizabeth. A tomb that has been untouched by human hand for what looks like thousands of years. And the tomb is magnificent, Elizabeth. It is situated inside a large chamber which I stumbled into. I knew immediately that there was something special about the room because the walls were smooth and cold like glass instead of the rough, sandy stone of the labyrinth walls. On closer inspection, I saw that the entire chamber is carved from a single block of quartzite. It is spectacular, Elizabeth. The light from my torch flickers and echoes around the polished surfaces like spirits dancing in the air. In the center of this room is the tomb. It is vastly superior in craftsmanship and size to anything I have ever discovered before. Wait, what was that? It's coming from the sarcophagus, from inside the sarcophagus, but that's impossible. <laughs> I am gone mad at last. No, no, I'm not mad. There is truly something in there. Wait, where is my chisel? Wait, I'm coming, I'm coming, goddammit. I'm coming. Oh my god, I'm through. I've done it. I'll get you out, don't worry. Wait. What are you? Oh god. Oh god. Stay back. Stay back, I say! Stay back or I'll shoot again. Oh god. Oh god. Run, Master, run! Escape, thank God. Oh, oh Christ, no! no! Ah! 
I made it out, Elizabeth, just about. I am now in Cairo, attempting to recover before my ship departs tomorrow. The laudanum has made me drowsy, but I shall try my best to finish this and hope it is not the last letter I shall ever send. My leg is in ruins. Whatever was down there, whatever I unleashed when I broke open that sarcophagus, it bit me, Elizabeth. I felt its foul breath on my skin, felt its teeth sinking into the tender flesh of my thigh, then again on my calf. I felt its hot tongue sliding down my leg. I, I felt it. It was real, and I will forever have the scars to show for it. I pushed at it with all my might, trying to free myself from its iron jaws, and I felt its leathery, scaled back. It felt animal, inhuman, but it spoke to me with a human voice in a language I did not recognize. It spoke, and I screamed, and suddenly I was free and running for my life, Bast following closely at my heels. I now know why the men ran away in the night. They knew what I did not, that the labyrinth that Hawara was not put there for the purposes of burying kings, but for imprisoning nightmares. The stone walls and the tunnels and the booby traps were not designed to keep us from getting in, but from what was buried inside, from getting out. A nightmare, an angry god, a demon which I have set free into the light. I remember my first journey to Egypt in 1880. I was 26 years old, and this country was so exciting, so wondrous to me. And now it is eight years later, and I thought I had learnt many lessons, except one, it seems. Let sleeping gods lie. I love you, Elizabeth. I am bringing the cat home with me. F. He. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world 
that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. That was Let Sleeping Gods Lie, written by Gemma Amo. This is Mark Nixon, who I did not write that story, as uh, what? as we've just established. And I am joined, as always, by the entire cast, David Alt. Hello, David. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Have you been released from any labyrinths recently? I could go for the easy joke and say I once went to Ikea recently, but... Uh, yeah, very good. Perhaps okay. that joke will be edited out, you know? Yeah, who knows? Who oh, knows? It's terrible. You'll have to wait until the episode is released. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, this is our first guest writer, and unfortunately, I can't actually ask you what your motivations for this story were, um, which is, which has been the the stock starter for starter for ten for our last two stories. But um, yes, when what do you? Think Gemma was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, she we were talking about it, and she did say she's long been fascinated by Egypt, and um, I believe there's some history in her family around that as well. So I think this was quite a uh, a particular story of interest for her. But I will stop speaking for Gemma at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, so Egypt has been uh, very popular. Uh, I remember the there was the craze in the twenties and thirties. Not that I remember this. Um, the craze <laughs> in the twenties and thirties for Egypt mania, and uh, I know this because my grandmother was really fascinated with with Egypt and everything to do with Egypt, and she had loads of books on it. And with uh, the opening of the tombs came the idea of the curses and uh, people dropping dead or disappearing. Uh, in mysterious ways or, or unlikely ways and of course science has had its own viewpoint on the idea of the curses and and if these deaths were strange or not but obviously from a storytelling perspective it's nice to have something out of the ordinary and lest we forget david there was a um a new sarcophagus opened recently ah yes and people wanted to drink the sewage water from the mummies <laughs> Um. <laughs> I, I did see one tweet it said go on open it it can't be anything worse than what the world is right now <laughs> well true we are recording this before um, the October EU summit before the November EU summit before the midterms so yes and indeed before the event indeed, um, yes. which decimated the population yes. of the world yes but uh, the less said about that the better I think uh, we don't want to rub salt into the wounds so to speak. Salt, of course, have it not been available for some time since the event. <laughs> the, the fact that the pyramids and all of these burial tombs were built so intricately with so many different walls, rooms, uh, and, and whatnot, you, you've got to put yourself into the mind of, of someone that was actually creating these and think, what were they doing? What were they trying to do here were they just trying to stop thieves were they trying to make it impossible to for the pharaohs to get out um you know th- there's there's a lot that we don't know because it happened 5000 years ago and we are just presented with the evidence and told to make up our own minds so no wonder so much excellent fiction has come from <laughs> this setting yes. 
and locations. Indeed, and you can imagine people in 5,000 years' time looking back on the world of 2018 and seeing all of the data that was pumped out and then wondering what actually happened and making their own minds up about uh, what everyone was thinking <laughs> when they <laughs> when they did what they did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I might have grandchildren one day that will see my Instagram account. <laughs> yep, Apple has already, Apple has already seen all of those pictures and everything you did with your camera. <laughs> <laughs> the realization isn't what have I done, it's what does David think well, I'm doing? When you, you tweet when you're reading MR James and you and you tweet the pictures of the books and things. What what did you think I was gonna say? Okay. Nothing at all. Fine. Nothing at all. That's uh, absolutely fine. It's because, ladies and gentlemen, David is now too cool for Facebook, so I think he thinks there's a lot more exciting things going on in it than there actually is. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Yes. Uh, so the burial chambers were found to be a lot deeper in, and these you, you had these massive pyramids that actually went even further down into the ground. The burial networks extended uh, a lot greater than just what you could see. So there was a lot that... Egyptologists and scientists have had to work through and even now we're only getting archaeologists able to use more recent imaging techniques to be able to see further through the rock of the pyramids and so it's mm. it's a long-standing and very tempting puzzle to try to work out uh, and so that is probably where some of this some of the mystery has come from the fact that we just don't know and it would be lovely to be inside the mind of one of these, uh, one of the pyramid builders or the architects, uh, but of course we can't. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. You'd, you'd be a, probably a slaver with a lot of people enslaved <laughs> under you, David. They're, uh, they were a little bit right on, of the spectrum back then. Oh <laughs> well, yes, they had a, they had a living god. This is true, but I, I, I was meaning it purely from a mathematical and scientific point of view. Rather yeah, than that, that one's going to stand up and come. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm just thinking about people, um, you know, obsessed with mystery and the technology. This, there's still people that believe in the Loch Ness monster, and there's like sonar down there, and they've they've done everything to. We know there's nothing in Loch Ness, but people still want to believe. So yes, and I think that's that's one of those very important points about storytelling is. You're encouraging people to imagine. And imagination is the stock in trade of, to me, every walk of life, whether it be writing or engineering, whether it be science and technology-based or arts-based. It's all to do with imagination. Can you, can you imagine something new? Can you create something that will fly or that will do this or that will do that? Can you imagine a different world and if you can imagine then can you create it so imagination is one of those crucial things that i believe is right at the very heart of humanity because without imagination we will just sit and watch tv all time and do nothing i am um, i'm going to make a fool of myself to someone who knows what they're talking about but i watched some documentary i think it was on the bbc but basically, it, it said that once man discovered fire, there is an evolutionary jump that 
can't really be explained. They don't know why they suddenly started achieving so much. And the theory is, is that by looking into the fire, it stoked their imagination and inspired them. Well, evolutionary jumps and especially uh, things like that, they do happen all at once. You can have a long period of time where nothing happens and then suddenly there is a change and there is an explosion of either living creatures. So if you look through uh, the fossil record, it's a long time of one particular thing. Then something changes and suddenly huge branching out of the of the evolutionary tree. Uh, when it comes to Homo sapiens, you then get um, the advent of farming. Suddenly, once we realize that we can farm, explosion of population, explosion of ideas and tools. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, mm. steam power in the 19th century, suddenly huge explosion of technology. But in this comparatively short space of time, suddenly there has been a huge advancement. And with AI really coming into its own uh, you can imagine the kinds of explosions that will happen uh, after that sudden that goes a lot more uh, more mainstream well that was the cause of the event though wasn't it david AI. well of course well I, I thought we said we weren't going to talk about it yeah but that is one thing fiction tells us when ai happens make sure they get you know ai rights and a good workers union <laughs> yes and 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 of course there and and of course we are going away from Egyptology to the genie in the bottle that is artificial intelligence. <laughs> you know, it's such a, as well, such a inspired and, and wonderful thing that you're talking about. And then I just cut you off with a bad joke. <laughs> That's our formula. But, but, <laughs> but again, it, actually, if you look at the, at the story, it's about someone who is wanting to discover what is at the heart of something. Mm -hmm. And then when that is finally revealed to him he realizes that he has let something horrible loose it's the it's the whole um idea of pandora's box mm -hmm. that don't open it don't open it whoops you've opened it okay now we've got to deal and the that's the case for the internet for ai for all of these things there is there is the point even the atom bomb yep you can do your research, research into into splitting the atom, but once that bridge has been crossed, you can't go back. There is this wonderful um, thing about technology that it's something that can't be unlearnt. Uh, and as you say, if there's one thing that sci-fi has taught us, you better hope that the AI is programmed properly. Otherwise, ha 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 ha, you get the event, or at least, <laughs> or at least programmed to love. Yes, exactly. And, oh, hang on, uh, hang on, hang on. That's the first thing people are going to want to do to Robert. Can we get away from this topic? Because uh, <laughs> we all know what's going to happen the minute we make artificial intelligence. People are going to want to have sex with it. So, yes, about these classic themes of Pandora's box, um, what I really liked about Gemma's story as well, I think she's exploring a very basic fear thing, and that is quite simply what is out there. Um, mm. My favorite mm. parts of the story is. Um, that's all good, but I just really like it when he's he's in the tent and he's woken up by this horrible noise mm. and and his rational mind kind of doesn't really I mean he doesn't really he doesn't really process it too much. But a lot of my a lot of protagonists in my stories and in the stories that I like to read are very much like this as well. And and very much why are we called shadows at the door? Because what is that thing outside mm. your door? 
that to me is fear and i'm really pleased that Gemma has these themes in her work as well Mm -hmm. very much so one thing that I also enjoyed very much about Gemma's story was the uh, was the inclusion of the cat, mm. and there, there was the part of me as I was reading it, I was thinking, "All oh, right, the, this cat's going to be something else, isn't it? This this cat's going to be a god." And uh, I was thinking that a lot more was going to happen because of the cat, mm-hmm. uh, and then of course that turned out to be a little bit of a red herring or a plot device. Uh, but to me, it was interesting that that, that completely wrong footed me as a reader. Mm. it was in itself a character and i think one of the it's i mean you as a writer will will know this that sometimes if you've got someone just going about their everyday life and especially if all they're doing is is writing or doing their work then you've got no way of getting them to talk yeah and uh and so the cat provided that excuse to say to bring him out from his own mind. And that's the thing when you're writing audio drama, you have to, there has to be a reason. We mm. don't walk around our houses, particularly those of us who live our own, going, oh, I shall go to the kitchen. I shall make a sandwich. You know, and, <laughs> and, and the cat was a, a nice way to introduce that. But uh, that's a very fine line when it comes to the narrative style. And one of my colleagues on the Sonic Society, Jack Ward, uh, wrote uh, about where you pitch your audio drama in terms of your first person narrator third person narrator um do you have this omniscient narrator that says and mark went into the kitchen and got himself a sandwich and then he picked up the knife and then he do you have that or do you have the internal monologue Mm -hmm. or do you have purely the reported sounds and the reported speech and we've experimented with a few forms of that because in story one we had our character uh, reciting mm-hmm. an event that happened. Then we've had the omniscient narrator, and now we've had mm-hmm. someone well writing their journal and mm-hmm. writing to their wife. So who knows what directions we shall explore in the future? Indeed, but it's it's the question of when it comes to you as a listener or as a reader, does a an omniscient narrator jar more than having? someone's internal monologue or purely reported speech because there there are plenty of podcasts out there that do entirely voice only sometimes it is it's sort of it's improvised on the spot i'm thinking here about uh, the truth podcast that has an idea and and a basic script but the the characters when they read the script they are encouraged to put it in their own words and and act with each other uh, more truthfully how they would naturally do as the characters or do you go for narrator and uh, internal monologue so for that I'm thinking the Leviathan Chronicles is a very good example of that with the, their omniscient narrator so as a writer you've got to think how your writing is going to be read and heard uh, and it's a it's a definite choice that you have to make how your character's interact with the reader i don't think there's a right or wrong answer i think it depends on the story you're trying of course to not. tell yeah mm-hmm. personally i lean towards the omniscient narrator because you can see things that the character can't so mm. when mark was making a sandwich if he turned around he would have seen the hands coming out of the fridge or, you know, <laughs> god i shouldn't freestyle right but you can inject terror because Sometimes a character can only be subjected to so much terror where you've either got to climax it and there has to be an ending to it or they're going to um, become immune to the terror that's going on. So Mm. you can 
drop the terror ring without the character having to deal with it so much. Yes. So, uh, back to Gemma's story then. Uh, I will say, got... David, I quite like it when it's someone else's story, because I feel like I can sit here and gush about it. And if it's mine, <laughs> I don't want us to do that. So, I like it. I like it. Gemma, you can come yes. back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a brilliant story. I, I, I very much enjoyed it. And the, going back then to the themes of, of the curses and what we, what we loose when we let things out this is it's not just i mean even shakespeare's grave um cursed be he that moves my bones and they haven't been moved Mm. as a result the idea that you can curse someone it's it's a staple an absolute staple in horror and and mystery tales Mm. and you get to this question of well is the curse purely um is it something that actually manifests or is it that kind of mind worm that gets into the head of the character and it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy? Saturday night, I uh, I went to the cinema and I saw a film called The Little Stranger, where um, it'll have been some time when it'll have been out for some time when we when this go, when this airs. But um, <laughs> the whole theme of that film is: is there a ghost in the film, or is it entirely in the minds of the characters? And I uh, mm. came out with a friend. Uh, disagreeing on on what had happened, and we both found that our right. theories could mm-hmm. both be right. Mm. But it's like they they do studies all the time. Those who think they are lucky will enjoy more luck. Those who think they're happy will be happier. Mm. I would like to think curses are still real, though. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been some terrific films lately as well. You know, it follows. Um, it's an absolutely marvelous horror film that came out mm. a few years ago, and that deals with the curse. Um, so, yeah. Time and tested story. Uh, one of the one very good film that I saw, which I think it was it was pretty panned at the time, and I can't remember exactly what the name of it was, but it was these uh, four teenagers that decided that they were going to go onto a South American temple uh, for larks, and then of course they're not let off it because there was something in the temple. There was this plant that could kill, that could then imitate any sound and grew very prodigiously and there was a, a, a whole tribe that were there to stop this plant from getting out. I've never of heard course, of this film. What is this? <laughs> I, I, I'll have to look it up. But of course these teenagers thought that they were being prevented from leaving because, uh, because the tribe was just being unfriendly to them. What, of course, they didn't realise was that the, the tribe was stopping the plant from escaping from from being let out of its prison Mm. it's interesting to see characters and their reactions to this sort of thing when we think it's about us it's not if you're stupid enough to go up a temple where they say do not walk on this temple you've got to accept the consequences of opening that box there are a lot of stories such as this one that do punish those for uh Mm. transgressing or um or even just thinking they know more than they actually do i'll tell you what film this story reminded me of was the exorcist Okay. Yes. At, at the beginning, when they they find the the effigy of um, what's the demon called in that? Is it Pazuzu? That's Captain Howdy, but I think his real name is Pazuzu. Right. That's what I really liked about this this script, and I was reading it at first, and it, it reminded me of of that. And as you say, the curse of opening a box, particularly mm. when you knew what it would do, reminded me of the Hellbound Heart by uh, Clive Barker, uh, okay. which of course was yes. Hellraiser. Ah, yeah. But it's very human if you're presented with a big red button to push the big red button, even if you're told not to push the big red button. Exactly. Um, and of course, we saw that in 
leave a light on for me. And our yes. first story where Troughton is, you know, fair enough, he's manipulated into receiving the lantern, but he does feel this urge to light this antique, and he knows he shouldn't, mm. this ancient thing, and yet he still does. Um, yes. And Tom Walker, in our second story, he decides better than doing a deal with the devil, and then changes his mind and goes back, and we saw how well that worked out for him. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, if we started producing ghost stories that had, had happy endings... Um, I I think we're not giving the people what they've come for. So, <laughs> well, yes, and and interestingly, the being a teenager in the nineties, I remember um, there were two particular there were ghost stories. There was, um, are you afraid of the dark? Mm-hmm. And there was another one on a similar theme, not goosebumps, but there was another one, but goosebumps will do. They, but the Are You Afraid of the Dark ghost stories, horror stories, always had an ending where the protagonists were safe, got off, whatever. Um, they were okay at the end. Whereas Goosebumps, not necessarily happened. Mm. The The fact that you knew that there was a happy ending coming didn't necessarily take away from the plot, but it was always nicer in from a, a watcher's perspective to see horrible things happening to the characters mm-hmm. and i think that's that's an essence of good storytelling if if your characters can go through horrible situations and it keeps you um, reading or watching then you've done well however if it's if you can put your characters through horrible situations and it's not entertaining then yeah that's that's not good writing well, I guess, I mean, I would agree with you, but I, I guess there are others that might disagree because um, there is a whole genre of oh, yes. torture porn. And, yes. And I have dipped my toes into that genre just out of curiosity. <laughs> um, when the Human Centipede appeared on Netflix, I did something I shouldn't have and watched it. But uh, Oh, yes. You, know, I just, you pushed the big red button. I Exactly, exactly. And I suffered mm. a fate worse than death for it. But... <laughs> Yeah, I guess there is an itch that some people have, and with, with, mm-hmm. perhaps it's a reflection on our modern times that <laughs> people want to, <laughs> to, to make themselves miserable like that. But I think that's why Shadows of the Door represents a very specific type of horror and a very specific itch to scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I'm really pleased that we do what we... What, I'm really pleased that we're doing what we do. And I, I do refer to it as, for lack of a better phrase, classy horror. Because yeah, <laughs> that's there's not a great deal of violence, you know. I haven't had to find mm. the sound effect for flesh being, you know, ripped apart of yet. <laughs> Depends yeah. how, how <laughs> desperate I get for ideas, but like, you know, I, I, I you can do so much more with suggestion and atmosphere, yeah, absolutely. And, and, yes. um, and as long as you have decent writing, you know, decent acting, and you know, and thankfully, we've got more than decent on all of those things. <laughs> Well, if any of our listeners have any suggestions that they would like to put to us, then please do get in touch at all the usual places. We are on social media, uh, on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, yes, we would love to hear from you. And if somebody, you know, some benevolent millionaire wants... David and I will live stream a viewing of all three Centipede movies. Careful what you promise. <laughs> Depends. I, I haven't put a number on this, David. So uh... <laughs> I think that um, is a lovely place to end this. 
Um, yes. <laughs> so once again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Mm-hmm. We do enjoy the other stories too, but uh, my modesty will not allow me to uh, address that. <laughs> Perhaps in season two. But yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us for this discussion. And we look forward to seeing you next time. That we do. We have more excellent stories for you and some of Mark's as well. So, <laughs> so and until then, um, I'm David Alts. And I'm Mark Nixon. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to a Shadows of the Door production. Story by Gemma Amor. Performances by David Alt. Music by Nico Vertezi. Editing by Mark Nixon. Copyright held by Shadows at the Door Publishing. If you enjoyed this production, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you very soon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.